Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. Accusations of devil worship are as old as Christianity itself, and it's safe to assume that they have likely always been false. The devil tends to emerge as the centerpiece of cultural hysteria whenever Western societies are met with anxiety-inducing events or times of extreme unrest. We don't have to look too far back to see this trend at its worst. In fact, we don't need to look back at all. Accusations of devil worship and child sacrifice are at the heart of the QAnon conspiracy narrative. But in the 1980s and 1990s, as economic upheaval led to the reimagining of American middle-class life, the devil suddenly reemerged, rampaging through middle America and taking control of its schools, daycare centers, governments, and of course, that most suspect and dangerous subgroup in American society, the teenager. Heavy metal music, Dungeons and Dragons, black clothes, and an interest in any religious or moral philosophy not called Christianity constituted evidence of devil worship. A subculture for the American misfit, brainy, bookish, imaginative types with an interest in something other than sports and sex, became the source of all danger and evil in the psyche of suburban America. The satanic panic, as it's come to be known, did indeed destroy lives and steal childhoods away, but not in the way its proponents suggested. Children in daycare centers were not being subjected to hideous acts of rape and ritual torture, but daycare workers and owners were subjected to a different kind of torture by a gullible and anxious public. Most notably, the McMartin family, whose lives and livelihood were ruined over the course of seven years from arrest to the conclusion of trials, which resulted in zero convictions, but plenty of public humiliation and emotional torment. In West Memphis, Arkansas, Damien Eccles, Jesse Miskelly, and Jason Baldwin, three teenage misfits who enjoyed wearing black clothes, listening to heavy metal, and in the case of Eccles, studying esoteric philosophy and reading Aleister Crowley, were convicted, without physical evidence and in spite of plenty of exculpatory evidence, of the apparently ritualistic murder of three young boys, a murder that bore all the hallmarks of a serial killing drifter. They were convicted and spent decades in prison, with Eccles on death row, until the documentary film Paradise Lost mustered enough public support to give their case a second look. All three were forced to sign an Alford plea, a guilty plea that allows the defendant to go free while maintaining his or her innocence. They did so only to save Eccles' life. As a result, the case is now closed, and the boy's killer is either free or died without being brought to justice. But false accusations of Satanism are not the only part of the story. The other, of course, is actual real-life Satanism. One of the great traditions of marginalized subcultures is the empowering reclamation of a slur or a slanderous accusation. Ideas and labels can be robbed of their oppressive and demeaning power if they are recontextualized as affirmative by those oppressed subgroups. And there are few better examples of this than the Satanic Temple, a social justice religious group with a philosophy of personal and community empowerment and a proud rejection of Western moralizing that has led to the victimization of groups like the LGBTQ plus community, religious minorities, and the generally non-conforming, using as its spiritual model Lucifer, the angel who embraced the outcast life in the name of rejecting forced servitude to a greedy, arbitrary, and uncompromising master god. The temple's de facto founder is Lucian Graves, a figure as enigmatic as he is charismatic, as soft-spoken as outspoken. He's the primary subject of Penny Lane's terrific 2019 documentary, Hail Satan, and he figures prominently in the book Speak of the Devil, How the Satanic Temple is Changing the Way We Talk About Religion, published in February of 2020 and written by my guest, Joseph Laycock, professor of religious studies at Texas State University, and the author of a number of other books on new religious movements and American religious history, including Dangerous Games, What the Moral Panic Over Role-Playing Games Says About Play, Religion, and Imagined Worlds and the just-released Penguin Book of Exorcisms. I asked him on the show to talk about the history of Satanism, real and imagined, and what the future might hold for one of the nation's fastest-growing religious groups, the Satanic Temple. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe.
Uh, so Joseph Blay uh, ah, let me try that again. Are we, are we doing a second take? Let's uh, take two. Joseph Laycock. <laughs> there we go. Thanks for joining me. I have asked you here to talk about Satan um, <laughs> because you are both a uh, scholar and one of the rare people who has written about um, Satan from both the cultural hysteria side of it and also the new religious movement side of it, um, which I find to be rare and, and very interesting. Um, can you tell me like why you ended up being a um, religious studies professor? That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, if you try to get a job in religious studies, everybody asks this question, I find it really ironic because a lot of what religious studies is about is kind of deconstructing why people have these arbitrary stories that they make up to impose meaning on the world. And then they're like, now tell us a story about, you know, the meaning of, of your life, right? That's a great, um, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah, I, I think probably part of it is that um, I grew up Catholic and I'm, I'm still Catholic, but my father is... Um, a constitutional law professor um, and has done a lot of um, First Amendment cases dealing with freedom of religion. So I remember with, in the seventh grade, my father going to the Supreme Court to do a case about Santeria. Uh, it's actually a pretty famous case about the, the rights of Santeria to, to do animal sacrifice. Yeah. Um, so, so I think seeing kind of my father and my mother, I think sort of naturally made me um, curious about different different religions and kind of how those shape um, people's lives and and what they do and how they see the world. Yeah. So your your primary your a lot of your books are about um, you have a book about vampirism. You have a book about the Satanic Temple, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and you have a book about the Satanic Panic. And and uh, so so you seem to primarily be interested in um, the occult and kind of these new. Um, religious movements slash occultism. What's aside from it being like totally punk rock? What's the what's the draw to that side of um, the the sort of modern landscape? Yeah. So my you know my, my field has been called new religious movements. I edit a journal, Novo Religio, um, that, that covers new religious movements. Um, I don't think that new religious movements is a very good category. So some of the things that we cover would include, say, the Branch Davidian siege and Scientology and wicca and those three things have absolutely nothing to do with each other right except they all freak out protestants right? <laughs> they all freak out yeah. kind of mainland protestants and, and we can't say well we study things that freak people out but that's that's really what we do and and these are all these are all movements that used to be called cults and, mm -hmm. and we got rid of the word cult because it's stigmatizing but we didn't really actually replace it we, we, we just put a better name on it we didn't change the the, the category uh, but I think that these groups are important to study because these are the groups that are most likely to have hysterical claims about them. And, you know, I'm, I'm in San Marcos, Texas. We actually have 10 linear feet of paperwork from the Waco siege. And it's kind of this great reminder of why religious literacy is necessary, right? Especially yeah. about small, maligned uh, uh, little groups. The other part of it is I think that these groups are just inherently interesting. And part of how I got my job is when they were creating a religious studies major at Texas State, they asked the students, what do you want to learn about? And I guess they thought the students would say something like, well, I want to do business in the global marketplace. And I think that better knowledge of Islam would help me do that. Hmm. But that's not what the students said. The students were like, I want to know about Jim Jones drinking Kool-Aid. And I want to know about Scientology. And I want to know about Anton LaVey. <laughs> And, and to be fair, they weren't like, well, you kids are dumb. You don't know what you really want. They said, let's find someone that could teach a class on new religious movements. And unfortunately for me, that ended up being me. How did they find you? How did they sort of pair you up with that? The, the academic job market, right? If you say, you know, we might have a job, it'll go <laughs> at least a year and maybe longer after that, you get, you know, 300, 400 applications, yeah. right? Everybody in the country uh, applies. And I know that they had a big field of some pretty good uh, candidates, so I feel very lucky that they chose me. I think it probably helped that the head of the hiring committee played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, um, <laughs> and maybe maybe I, I sort of won some affection points because I had uh, just written a book on Dungeons and Dragons. But but yeah, yeah. I, it's it's you know they say luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So so speaking of 
D and D, which which comes up way more often in my podcast than I'd like. Um, but why does D and D make you into a devil worshipper? Uh, <laughs> that, that's kind of what you wrote your 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 book about. Um, that part of the the broader satanic panic. In fact, one of the main channels, kind of of the, of the satanic panic, um, was was Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so. Explain to us a little bit as to as to why. Why did this game where nerds just like roll dice and move around little, you know, pewter, whatever. Uh, why did this game cause suburban moms to flip out and drive the devil back into the um, collective imagination of like middle America? Right. So this is the big question. And, you know, Dangerous Games was the first book that I wrote after I had published my dissertation. And I I really had total freedom to choose whatever project I I wanted. And, you know, when I talk to uh, Zoomers, to to students that are my, you know, who are in college now, a lot of them play D&D and they like they kind of know that this thing happens. Um, but I lived through it, right? I grew yeah. up in Texas and I definitely had people telling me that I was going to kill myself because I played this <laughs> game and that, uh-huh. and that I worships, you know, God from books and things like that. And I talk about that, the irony, I, I went to an Episcopalian prep school and this, this bully was like, you worship gods from books. That's so sad. And I'm like, we, we all worship gods from a book, man. Like that's what we're taught to do here at this at this school. Um, so it's not only that that this sort of uh, harmless children's game was seen as demonic, but the the, the people who invented D and D, Gary Gygax and David Arneson, were very devout Christians. Right. And you can tell that just looking at the book because there's spells that literally like turn sticks into snakes and and part water and things like this, and weirdly the christian elements were just seen as further evidence that this was an evil game that was was made to to corrupt people so that really made me think there was something very strange going on here and on one level i think just that the covers were scary and i think a lot of parents just saw there's some very famous first edition covers one of them it's it's technically an ifrit of a fire genie but it's it's red and it has horns and it's holding a scantily clad woman and i can understand why somebody um, might, might think that this was, you know, not a good game to buy for their teenager. But the people who were leading this um, were making um, far more outrageous claims um, that, you know, the imagination doesn't really exist, that if you imagine a monster, that's actually a demon um, uh, attacking you uh, and, and so forth. And, and my thesis in, in Dangerous Games is that on some level, um, this game made religious people uncomfortable or a certain yeah. type of religious people uncomfortable because they said, how do I know that I am not just sort of living this elaborate role-playing game with imaginary characters that, that me and my friends make up and, and, and talk about. Um, so, so I think that um, on, on some level, this game sort of made them uh, uh, uncomfortable in a way that the, the, the kids playing the game couldn't have possibly uh, uh, known about. So that's, that's kind of the big reveal of, of dangerous games. The weird thing is, I I think of the um, the sort of second go round of this seems to have been around the Harry Potter series, and when you look at the way that especially very sort of fundamentalist uh, Christian groups responded to the uh, Harry Potter phenomenon, it was a similar sort of a thing. It's like if you if if you if if there are wizards then you will become a devil worshiper right um but oddly like that even though harry potter was far more high profile and far more popular than than dnd was in a sort of a um the, the breadth of its audience that didn't seem to history didn't repeat itself it seems like um in quite the same way so i wonder like what is it about dnd in particular um, that that you reckon sort of lent it to go beyond just a sort of niche um, fear of of fundamentalist Christians, and rather this like nationwide um, assumption or or panic is it like is it the secrecy of the game? Is it like because you you play it in a basement with nerds? Is like or is there something else to it? Do you think? Well, I think there's a number of things. I mean. One thing you see with both these phenomena is 
the, these these Christians kind of tangling themselves up in knots, trying to say that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien are perfectly safe and okay, <laughs> right? Because right. Those, yeah, are, yeah. those are Christian authors, and and D and D and Harry Potter are really bad. And I read a book about Harry Potter. It was called something like The Menace Behind the Magic or something like this. And and this guy is just geeking out, and he was like, "Well, Gandalf is technically a Maiar." And therefore, you know, when he does magic, it's not witchcraft, right? Um, even though in Harry Potter, of course, we're all muggles. We can't do these things. And there was this argument about, well, the, the rituals in Harry Potter are imitatable. And I discussed this with my students. And, you know, in some of the, the Narnia books, the kids invent a ritual to go to Narnia where they face east and they chant Aslan's name. And I, I brought this up with my students. And a lot of them were like, oh, yeah, I did that ritual when I was 10. I tried to go to Narnia. You know, it, it didn't work. Right? So there, so who's really teaching the kids to, to do witchcraft, right? Um, so, you, you know, so that that's part of it. I, I think a difference, you talked about the difference. You know, one is that you can pick up a Harry Potter book and read it and say, okay, well, this is a story with, you know, lessons about help your friends and be brave and, and so forth. You really can't pick up a and d book and read it, especially the kinds of books there are in the 80s. Oh, that's you know, point. the first page is like when you calculate Thacko, and it's just incomprehensible. And, and what I noticed was these anti-D&D religious tracts would just so, look at all these tables. They wouldn't understand the rules, but they love to count things. So they would be like, you know, the word hell appears 54 times in this book. There are 67 kinds of weapons. And they, you know, they would make all these, these sort of lists, right? And then the third thing is uh, there were these high-profile suicides, um, that were blamed on Dungeons and Dragons. In my opinion, Dungeons and Dragons had nothing to do with the suicides. Mm-hmm. We didn't really have uh, Harry Potter suicides in the same. <laughs> That's way. We, true. We didn't have. It, it, we didn't have people touring the country saying, you know, Harry Potter destroyed my family. It made my son kill itself. And I think that was a really powerful story in, in the eighties when they were saying that about D anD. d Right. That, that's I, that's a really great point because I mean Harry Potter is is far more uh, visible and and out in the open and you understand it if you're a suburban mom um, in a way that you know even even smart people don't get D and D a lot of the time. Um, I I wonder if like the reemergence of the Satanic Panic that seems to be going on right now. Um, mostly around the sort of QAnon phenomenon and, and you know, um, the the people who are like most far gone on the internet and 4chan and so on and so forth. Um, if, if you've been sort of tracking it and what similarities or, or differences um, in the way that it's being presented now sort of differ from the 1980s D&D version of, of, of the panic? Well, I mean, in some ways, I don't think a lot has has changed. And what some people have already noticed is the things that QAnon is saying that the Democrats and the the Hollywood elite and and, and whoever else, the deep state, are doing to children. These are the same things that medieval people said the Jews were doing. Mm -hmm. And they're the same things that, you know, first century Romans said that Christians were doing. Mm-hmm. So it, it's the same thing over and over again. It's it's weird sexual perversions, incest, and and hurting babies. It's the same two things for thousands of years. So I actually think what we're seeing is something that is kind of like the, the dark side of human nature. It's almost something that we are sort of hardwired to make up these stories um, uh, about other people. Um, I think if you compare QAnon with D&D, I think you both see... Um, these kind of what I call claims makers, um, basically using every means at their disposal to kind of get the word out. So the internet didn't exist in the eighties, but people were right. making, you know, little, little, um, zines, I guess you could say these, these crappy little, um, uh, you know, Xerox, uh, you know, lists of like rock band symbols and things like this, right. There's a whole subculture of these, police occult crime manuals that are full of typos and made on Xeroxes and just sort of passed around. And, <laughs> and I dug up a lot of them from the eighties talking about uh, a D and D. And of course now they can just use what eight Kun, right. They can use all these sort of <laughs> scummy uh, websites that keep being um, uh, uh, taken down and then reborn. Um, the other thing that I see is I think that you have um, two types of people. So you have people in both cases who I think, 
just sort of legitimately believe this and maybe haven't even researched it very much, but it feels right. And I have some sympathy for those people because they often are just sort of, you know, they want to save the children or, or whatever. Right. And then you have the masterminds behind these things. And in those cases, I think the more that we learn about them, the more that we find that these are actually deeply disturbed people. Um, and so John Todd was one of the people behind the claims about D&D. He literally died in a mental institution. I mean, he was not well. Um, and, you know, he was he was convicted of, I believe, rape or some kind of sexual uh, offense. Um, uh, Mike Warnke um, was a key figure in starting the Satanic Panic. And he said, you know, that he wrote a book called The Satan Seller. Right. And said, and said that he was the head of 5,000 Satanists and was doing... You know, he had this harem of satanic sex slaves that were bringing him pounds of cocaine to do every day. Absolutely none of it was true. And and right. to the credit of the, the Christians, it was actually the evangelical magazine Cornerstone who, who used investigative reporters. And they said, look, we found your college yearbook of the exact year <laughs> that you said you were all strung out on heroin. Here you are and you're in Campus Crusade for Christ. Right. And and, and he never he never owned up that he had been a liar, you know. Right. Um, yeah. you know, and, and people bring up the Salem witch trials, but you know, to their credit, the Puritans had a moment where they said, you know what, we killed innocent people and we are going to hold a day of fasting and pray that God forgives us. And we're going to pay reparations to the families, but with the satanic panic, we just doubled down, right? We, you know, there are still people to this day saying, oh, the McMartins were, uh, were Satanists, you know, this is this famous preschool case, right? Um, which, which really makes me, um, depressed, right? That in some ways we are actually much more hypocritical than our, our sort of Puritan ancestors. I wonder if you have a thought on like, uh, regarding the, the Salem uh, witch trials and um, right now and the 1980s, if you have any thoughts on if there is like, if, 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 these things are just sort of a natural um, outgrowth of a time of kind of deep anxiety and uncertainty. And like, it's just, we're just bound to see witches and devils. Um, we're just sort of hardwired for that when it, whenever we feel anxious or, or is it kind of the other way around? Like is the anxiety caused by our, our tendency to see these things? You know what I mean? Cause I, I hear a lot of sociologists say that, I don't think with a great amount of evidence that, you know, these, these fears and panics only arise when, uh, you know, there's a sort of social upheaval going on, but um, I'm not, I'm not really convinced on the chicken or egg of that, um, that argument yet. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing people need to understand is there's this great rivalry in the university between the historians and the sociologists. Right. And, <laughs> right. and the historians say, look, there are no patterns to human behavior. That's why you have to be good at history and know what actually happened. And the sociologists say, well, no, look, there's this great pattern that happens over and over again. And the historians can always say, no, that look, here's where all those factors were in place and it didn't happen. Your, your, your theory is wrong. Um, and as someone in religious studies, I'm kind of playing both sides of the of the field. Um, having said that, I, you know, I do think there's something to this pattern. I do think that we see people, um, you know, having these conspiracy theories and, and getting to the point where they're actually hurting innocent people, right? As we saw in Salem, and, and as I think we're we're going to see in, in in QAnon to some extent, we've seen already with things like PizzaGate. Um, I, I think these do coincide with uncertainty. I think. One thing people don't understand about the Salem Witch Trials is, yes, they believed in the devil, but so did all of the other Puritans, and this didn't happen in their communities, you know. But um, they had they had just um, had a big military defeat right up in up in Maine um, against Native Americans and, and their French allies, and uh, you know some of the first people to begin having symptoms had what could be interpreted as post traumatic stress disorder. So it was not at all certain that their experiments uh, was going to succeed. It could be their entire community could have been wiped out. Um, and so I think the connection is that when people are uncertain about sort of very basic assumptions that form the basic order that they live by, uh, including, I think, what's relevant to this case is America is a white Christian nation and white Christians get to call the shots, not minorities or immigrants or, or other groups of people. 
when that gets called into question, I think there is an instinct to sort of shore up what they believe to be true by conjuring up this, this fantasy of this uh, evil subversive conspiracy, what sociologists call a subversion narrative, right? It's the commies, it's the, it's the Jews, uh, right. it, it's, it's the deep state. And, you know, one of my, um, one of my mentors when I was doing my dissertation was David Frankfurter. And I'm actually plagiarizing a lot of his ideas as I say this. But <laughs> That's okay. He wrote a book called Evil Incarnate. And if you're interested in these patterns, Evil Incarnate really goes into um, looking at these connections across history. Because David Frankfurter was one of the first people in religious studies during a satanic panic to call bullshit. Right. Because there were people actually publishing articles in religious studies about, you know, this must be the belief system of these satanic cults. And Frankfurter said, look, there are no satanic cults. If there were, we would have arrested somebody. Um, and so his conclusion, which I which I um, you know, agree with, is that, um, you know, imagining this horrible conspiracy that eats babies and has crazy sex orgies um, weirdly it's it's like you cast a shadow and the existence of that shadow affirms that everything that we're doing has got to be right we must be on the right side because look how totally evil uh our our, our enemies are and, and i think that's what we're seeing right now hmm. so let's talk about the difference between devil worship and satanism and i i think you just kind of alluded to this and i i, th- I think you agree that in my estimation and uh nowhere in any research i've ever done have i ever come across any legitimate instance of of devil worship um that 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 idea is basically either so fringe that it basically is in mental hospitals uh or just a complete fantasy um on behalf of of christians um have you have you ever seen any evidence that there's ever been uh, any kind of organized devil worship uh, anywhere in history? I mean, you know, technically, yes, right. I've I have corresponded with two people who identify as theistic Satanists, right. Um, but, but even then, when they talk about I worship Satan, obviously, Satan to them is not you know the Lord of Hell who is a fallen right. angel, or their understanding of Satan is different. They don't say you know that the person I worship is is evil. They would probably say the opposite, right? God is evil, and, and the, the being I worship is is, is good. Um, but other, it is very very fringe, even within the field of, <laughs> of, of Satanism. The, the vast, overwhelming majority of self-identified Satanists are are non-theistic, right? They'd say I don't believe in God or the devil. Satan is basically my favorite fictional character. Right. Um, and, and so my most recent book is on the Satanic Temple and the Satanic Temple and their, their sort of rival now, the, the Church of Satan, um, <laughs> are, are both, uh, they, they are both non-theistic religions. These are both religions that reject all forms of, of supernaturalism, including God and the devil. Right. So... Yeah, let's talk about the Satanic Temple. I, th- I think they're the most well-known. Um, they, of course, are the group who threatened to, or actually like created a statue of Baphomet uh, to put in front of the uh, the Arkansas State House. Is that what it was? Well, <laughs> so originally they wanted to put it up in Oklahoma, and and the Oklahoma Supreme Court, without any reference to the Satanists, said this goes against our state constitution. The Ten Commandments has to come down. And, and when that happened, um, the Satanic Temple said, "Well, then we're done in Oklahoma because we don't want we don't want to replace somebody else's religious symbol. We want we want both or nothing." Uh, and then um, Jason Rapert, a senator in Arkansas, uh, passed a bill to put a Ten Commandments monument up in Arkansas, and so the whole thing uh, repeated itself. Um, but so it's one statue, but it gets around a lot. It's been in Detroit. Um, it's currently in Salem, Massachusetts, and you can go see it if, if you're passing through. Um, and what I find really hilarious is that when these Confederate monuments were being torn down all over the country, people mistakenly believed that there were like dozens of these statues in all these cities where, the, where it had appeared. And we're saying, you know, how come we're not tearing down all these Baphomet statues? And of course, it's just one statue. And, and, and one meme even said there's one in Oklahoma, there's one in Arkansas, there's one in Sabrina, New York. 
as far as I can tell, there is no such town as Sabrina, New York. Um, yeah, that sounds made up because of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. But exactly. Sure. And of course, there was a whole lawsuit where um, Sabrina the Teenage Witch sort of made a 3D rendered computer facsimile of their Baphomet statue. Right, right, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, who, who is Baphomet? Okay, so so this is, again, for the uninitiated, you hear like Devil, Satan, Baphomet, all these different names and it's confusing as to like which one's which or like what makes baphomet different from satan um why what so what is this baphomet character like how is it distinct from um your sort of typical devil slash satan whatever um image so the name baphomet appears in france after the crusades and most historians um associate it with the persecution of the knights templar so the, the knights templar um, protected pilgrims during the Crusades. They invented the check. Um, so they were involved in financing pilgrimages and they became very powerful and their order was suppressed and they needed to sort of make up a reason to suppress this order. And they said, well, you guys are only pretend to be Christians. You actually worship Baphomet. And Baphomet was assumed to be a French corruption of Muhammad. Yeah, right. In other words, you guys, you guys switch teams in the Holy Land. <laughs> Um, and you're, you're secretly uh, Muslims. Um, and, and then Baphomet became this sort of figure that sort of weird cults must worship because that's why we executed the, the Templars. And then in the 1800s, there was an occultist named Eliphas Levi in, in France. That was his pen name. And he wrote a book, uh, I believe it was called Dogma and Ritual, about occultism. And he had this very famous drawing of Baphomet. Um, as basically the reconciliation of opposites. So if you look at that drawing, um, Baphomet has a goat's head, um, but has angel wings. They're not bat wings, they're angel wings. Uh, Baphomet has breasts. Um, Baphomet has scales like a sea creature, but it's a land creature. And so it was kind of this idea of kind of the mystery of the universe is all these things that we think of as, as opposite being being reconciled on this kind of transcendent occult uh, uh, level. So it wasn't meant to be a portrayal of the devil or anything evil, but it's very scary looking. It freaks people out when they see it. And I think because of that, um, you know, heavy metal artists and all kinds of people put it (laughs) on their album covers and you just began seeing it on t-shirts and and, and things like this. Um, and, And one thing that's interesting is when the Satanic Temple came up with this idea for the statue, um, Lucian Greaves, who was sort of the most steeped in, in Satanism of those members, said it should be Baphomet. And they said, you know, we're going to have to take the breasts off because otherwise it'll get thrown out on technicality, right? That this is inappropriate. And they even experimented with, could we put like some kind like a bikini on, on Baphomet um, or like a toga? And it just looked terrible. So they, they decided to just give it um, a, a male uh, a breast. And then one of the the, the um, people involved in this project said, let's give it uh, bat wings because that's scarier. And uh, <laughs> Lucian Grief said, no, 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 it has to be angel wings. This has to be about uh, the, the the reconciliation of, of, of opposites, which kind of goes with their idea of this is meant to be a complement to a Ten Commandments monument, not a replacement of it. Yeah, I I want to come back to Lucian Greaves in a, in a few minutes. Um, before we get there, I, so you mentioned the... Uh, the Satanic Temple on the one side and the Church of Satan on the other side. And most people, if if they know anything about modern Satanism, they know who, roughly who Anton LaVey is, and or or at least know the name Anton LaVey. Um, Anton LaVey was was sort of a an outsized uh, counterculture figure um, uh, during the nineteen sixties and seventies, right? And and you know, and he he kind of kind of had that that look of like, you know, the dark eyes and the, the weird uh, pointy beard and the shaved head and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, he, he, he was, there's a lot of like performance art going on with LaVey as well. And I think because of that, there's a sense that people have that um, modern Satanism is primarily kind of a form of performance art, um, which is something that you tackle in your, in your book uh, as well. But, but first, first let's talk a little bit about LaVey and, how we should read him um, from a standpoint of whether or not he was a genuine kind of religious figure or um, simply someone who wanted to kind of poke society in the eye. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that he was, as, as you said, he was a he was a gadfly. He liked to rile people <laughs> up, and and he was a contrarian, you know. Yeah. I, and and I think that so much of what he says in his early writings is because he lived in San Francisco in the '60s, and he was just annoyed by all the hippies and the hippie ethos. Um, and the other thing to remember is in the sixties, everybody really believed that Christianity had like maybe 20 years left. Right. Right. And, and right. so in one of his essays, <laughs> he says, um, well, we don't need to blaspheme Christianity anymore because Christianity is done. What we should be doing is blaspheming, you know, pictures of Timothy LeVay or Timothy uh, Leary, sorry. And, you know, we should, we should be stomping on LSD tablets and things like this because I'm sick of all this love and, uh, and, and equality, um, and, and now we're, we're in 2020 and you read statements about, you know, I hate equality. We should be a stratified society with slaves. And it reads very differently reading it today than, than it would have been in, in, in San Francisco in the, in, in the sixties. Um, so I, you know, I see LaVey as somebody who kind of dreamed big, but was always kind of flying by the seat of his pants. Um, and you know, I, I think some some biographers of Olvay have said, you know, once the Church of Satan started to get anywhere, kind of felt like this is a pain in the ass, right? And I, I like I like getting checks and attention and things like this, but I don't want to spend all my time running a, a church because that's a lot of work. Um, and and so eventually he became kind of a a, a recluse, and you know his daughter. Um, Zena had this big falling out with him and basically said, my father lived in a fantasy world that he didn't want to yeah. deal with the, uh, 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 with the real world. Uh, but the thing that's important to understand about LeVay that is not true is that during a satanic panic, LeVay was held up as being something tangible that people could point to. And so when you said there's, there are no satanic cults, they would say, look at LeVay. And you'd say, well, LeVay doesn't never hurt anybody. He never broke the law and his, his, his writings are very specific that Satanists cannot break the law. And they would say, yeah, but that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? As you start off mm -hmm. in the church of Satan and then, you, you know, the next thing you know, you, you become a Democrat and then you're drinking blood and eating babies. Right. Um, right. And, and so LeVay is sort of used to this day as, as, as kind of this, this boogeyman and his evidence for this um, other version of, of Satanism that, that has no basis in reality. I, I also wonder if um, you have any insight into this that I've also I've kind of found it interesting um, a sort of a, a through line that there's all these accusations from um, organized Christians of Satanist or devil worshippers abducting children and and using them for ritualistic uh, whatever and uh, you know sexualizing them and so on and so forth and all of this happening while we are in the um, real, you know, the, 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 the sort of epicenter of all of that happening within the Catholic church. Um, do, do you, do you have any inkling as to whether or not there was like projection going on there? In other words, was, was part of the, um, you know, putting the attention on someone like LaVey and, and just saying like, there are Satanists out there and even they say they are, um, do you think there was any part of that that was like a cover-up to what was actually going on, um, especially within, you know, the, the Catholic clergy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, I think this is something we do all the time, right? I, I think that, that we sort of suppress a problem and then we project it onto to somebody else. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, Debbie Nathan, who is an investigative reporter who, who debunked a lot of claims about Satanists hurting children in the 80s. You know, she pointed out that in the 80s, there was an awareness of child abuse um, that, that we really didn't know about child abuse prior to, to the 80s. Not really. Right. I mean, we knew some people hit their children, but, you know, there was a moment in the 80s where you really have doctors saying, you know, especially doing x-rays of children and saying, you know, something has happened to this child, right? And assuming it must be some rare disease and eventually realize, no, just some sometimes people, you know, break their, their kids' arms and things like this, uh, uh, beating them. So there was a, a recognition that this happened, but nobody wanted to actually go a step further and say, you know, it's, it's the parents and family friends who are abusing children. And what we really didn't want to do in the Reagan administration was say, we should give the government more power to go into families and, and prevent child abuse. 
So the way of talking about it became this kind of compromise. This is Debbie Nathan's theory that we were going to say, well, yes, children are being abused all over America and it's terrible and we should stop it. But the abusers are these Satanists, right, who, who've sold their souls to Satan. They're not, they're not good Christian parents and PTA members and, and things like this. And, of course, the Catholic Church is, is tied up in this, too, because part of the reason that pedophiles in the Catholic Church had such access is the incredibly high regard um, that the Catholic families held uh, a, a priest in, right? And so you, you watch these documentaries and the parents of the victims are saying things like, well, you know, my, the, the priest would come over and, and give my children a bath, right? <laughs> and, and, and you know, I, I do both these cases. I teach a course called American Religious Controversy, and we look at the, yeah. the Catholic sex abuse scandal right at, because we go in chronological order. So we do the McMartin preschool trial about satanic panic, and then we do the, um, uh, uh, the, 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 the clerical uh, sex abuse scandal. And the students are like, well, I wouldn't let anybody give my child a bath. Right. It doesn't matter who they are. Right. Um, and, and so um, Debbie Nathan's theory applies there, too. Right. It also fits the data. And I think we're still doing this because, you know, we have this claim of, well, there's a deep state and they, they, they hurt children and they keep children in, in prisons underground and they're doing all this evil stuff. And then if you go to these people and you say, do you want to talk about these ICE detention centers on the border where children are held in cages? And where hysterectomies are being forcibly performed on innocent people, and they're like, "Well, that's fake news, right?" Right? And, and, <laughs> yeah. and it's it's yeah. it's sad and perverse, right? That yeah. the conspiracy theory is actually aiding and abetting the very thing that it claims to be combating. Yeah, yeah, I find that really. So uh, one of the things that you just mentioned that I'd never thought of before, and and um, you know, now I'm seeing exactly that same thing. I, I've I've had that thought. Um, I, I follow QAnon pretty obsessively, um, not as a believer, <laughs> as an observer. Um, but I'm like, yeah, it's it's like, yes, you can go save children because our government is locking them in cages and separating them from their families and making them orphans, and and not because 400,000 are trafficked every year. And you know, it's it's it, it is really crazy. But I never really put together the idea of, especially in. Um, in Reagan's America, the notion of if if we admitted this was actually happening, the government would have to do something, and our whole line is the government can't do anything and shouldn't get involved. So therefore, let's blame it on devil worshippers. Um, I never made that connection before, and I think that's really that's a really fascinating one. Yeah, the other interpretation of why this happened when it did, and also why the the people accused of Satanism were were like kindergartner teachers and daycare providers which is an odd choice, right? Yeah. Not like, I don't know, lawyers or something, yeah. right? Um, so, so David Bromley is a sociologist, and he says that in the 80s, you know, the economy was switching from the model being a, a one-income family to being a two-income family, right. which means you have latchkey kids for the first time. And I was a latchkey kid in, in the 80s um, a, a lot. And so parents sort of were forced against their will to outsource raising their, their children to, you know, karate instructors and bus drivers and babysitters and all this sort of stuff. And so it, Bromley says the, the idea that Satanists were corrupting your children behind your back was metaphorically true, even if it was actually false. But it, it felt mm. like that. It was a way of expressing this frustration of, you know, who are all these weird people raising my kids while me and, and my partner are, are at work? Um, and I think there's something to that theory as well. Yeah, and that's you know that that kind of brings it back to the to the D and D thing as well because you know I, like when I played D and D in like middle school, like we were the least cool, interesting people. I mean, you know, like we certainly were like uh, performing satanic rituals or doing anything remotely interesting like that, right? We were the nerdiest uh, outcast kids, and so it, it was always funny to me that that would be. Um, you know the genesis of of or or one of the narratives of this of this panic, but in the context of yeah, but like you go in the basement after school um, because both parents are working and you're playing this game and nobody knows what you're doing. Um, you know that's that's when it clicked and I'm like okay now it makes a lot more sense because like why would you accuse these very nerdy awkward kids of something so salacious right uh and so sort of um you know 
badass and metal <laughs> as, as being in a satanic cult. Yeah, and because it's a game of the imagination, it, it does lend itself to people who are trying to find any kind of evidence that there is this horrible, scary occult conspiracy. Right. Because they can tell you, yes, your your child is sitting safely in your basement. Yeah. There's not any strangers or Satanists, but in their minds, they're being exposed to all of these things, and you know you can't see what's happening in your kids' minds. And who has the time to actually watch their teenager play Dungeons and Dragons? Right. Um, and, and what what teenager would want their parents watching uh, anyway? And it's um, not a spectator game. <laughs> it's really, really not right. So uh, yeah, there, there's a whole body of literature on. You know, is D&D an art form? And some people say, well, it is an art form, but it's not an art form directed towards the audience. It's an art form entirely yeah. directed towards the other the other artists or the other uh, uh, performers. Um, so, so, so it's, it's useful for um, persuading people of this conspiracy that isn't really there because of that imaginative quality to it. Um, let's talk... Satanic Temple versus Church of Satan. What was the kind of genesis of both of those uh, organizations, and um, what's their beef with each other? Well, you know, the Church of Satan began in 1966, and um, you know, the scholars of of Satanism, um, you know, who, who've written multiple books on this. Um, I've only written one on one specific group. Um, have said basically every modern Satanist group in the world owes its existence to Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan in, in 1956, mm-hmm. even if, you know, they they curse LaVey and say he was a fake Satanist or, or, or whatever. Um, LaVey put the idea in everyone's head that there is a real religion out there called, called Satanism. Everybody could go buy the Satanic Bible at Barnes & Noble, right? You can, you can <laughs> right. still do that to, to this yes, day. <laughs> um, and I don't think anyone reads it. I think they just buy it and they they wave it around, right? It's, that's it's so become, true. Yeah. Become a prop. It's, and a lot of those people are pastors, right? The pastors will kind of like the real Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that's a good point, right? Um, so Levey it, it basically, I think, founded this religion on a lark, and there's kind of a story that you know a, a publicist said, you know, he, he, before he founded the Church of Satan, he had a he had people that would attend his house for lectures because he was a very interesting and knowledgeable guy and he would give lectures on you know cannibalism or vampires so these just neat macabre topics like if, if LeVay lived today he would have a podcast right he would have oh, had a sure. great <laughs> podcast and maybe even a, a book deal would have come out of it or something um so somebody said well you could you could make a whole religion and he says you know what I, I think I will and so when he starts the church of satan it, it begins very kind of Goofy, and you have to remember, nobody was really scared of uh, Satan in 1966. In 1964, only 30% of Americans said they believe the devil even exists, right? Um, a lot of Christians said the devil's a metaphor in 1966. So, you know, he had a, a, a satanic baptism, and he had a satanic funeral for a, a sailor who had died, and, and a satanic wedding. Uh, and it was just sort of this kind of fun thing. And then uh, other other chapters um, began to form, and it sort of began to develop a little bit. He developed a philosophy um, and and rituals and and so forth. But a big part of the Church of Satan today is sort of we are um, we are rugged individualists, and it's it's really a lot of people said this is a paradox, right? Of, well, why are you guys even a church if you say everyone's free to believe whatever they want, do whatever they want, uh, and 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 so forth? It's almost like you guys are sort of mean libertarians or, or, or mean, uh, mean Unitarians, right? You just sort of, you know, everybody kind of have their own. Or both. Yeah. You know, or, or, or both, right? And I said libertarian because there is a big influence of, of course, Ayn Rand yeah. and, and the idea of everyone uh, ought to pursue their own interests and a rejection of the idea that sort of you you owe anything to to other people. Uh, LaVey talked about uh, psychic vampires and, and so forth, right? People who you use pity to get what they want from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the Satanic Temple um, began in um, 2013, um, and Lucian Greaves um, had a background in, in, in the Church of Satan, um, and he was, he was frustrated by it because they, they didn't really do anything by 2013. Right. Um, and not only did they not do anything, but they actually said, well, we shouldn't do anything. Right. We're not here to change the world. You know, religion should get out of politics, and so we should lead by example. 
Um, and you know, they, they didn't really do much. I, you know, I think there were parties and things like that, but, but not, not a lot going on. Um, and so, um, the group formed basically as depending on your point of view, either a, a prank or um, what uh, Malcolm Jerry, the other founder, has said was was it was a political action and a kind of provocation and experiment where they uh, went down to Florida and they praised um, Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, who had passed this law about students can read inspirational messages, which the original draft of the law said prayers, not inspirational messages. And they say, you know, finally, Satanists are free to spread Satanism in public schools. And it's all thanks to Rick Scott. Um, and if you watch it, probably, it, it really is hilarious. I, I've, yeah. I've, watched, yeah. I've laughed out loud um, uh, watching it. Um, and then, you know, that was successful and kind of one thing uh, uh, led to another. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger and it became more organized. And now they're currently working on an ordination system where to be a licensed minister in the, the Satanic Temple. Um, you know, you have to, to, there's a long reading list that you have to read. You have to write an essay and, and this kind of thing. Um, and so I think even if it wasn't a real religion to begin with, it, it is now. Right. Um, it's a real right. non-theistic religion. And they kind of, you know, a, a lot of um, Satanic Temple members have said basically we don't owe LaVey and the Church of Satan anything. We don't read their books. Um, if you go to the headquarters in Salem, there is a big library of books and there's nothing in there by LaVey. It's, it's very conspicuous by its absence. Um, however, I do know that the TST chapters around the country do read LaVey and they do, they do discuss it. Um, but politically they're sort of diametrically opposed to the church of Satan and that they believe in, um, you know, social justice and kind of taking care of the needy and things like this. And LaVey, you know, basically said, you know, screw the needy, right? Yeah, and, right, and I, think, right. I think the other thing is, is LeVay would often just say things to get a rise out of people. So it's hard to tell when LeVay is being serious. You know, in another statement, he said, look, if if Satanists didn't care about the world, we wouldn't be so so gloomy all the time. Right. Um, so, so it's hard to tell. I don't know what LeVay would actually think of the Satanic Temple if he saw them today. Um, so the Church of Satan... Um, you know, to some extent, I understand their grievance because they're very often the Satanic Temple does something and the reporters say, oh, the Church of Satan today did this. Right. And the Church of Satan is like, not us. <laughs> right. Not only is that not us, but we would never do something like this. Right. This, this is really embarrassing for us. And so I understand that. Right. right. Um, critics have said, though, that this is also about jealousy. Right. Because the, the Church of Satan has been contracting and kind of moribund for a long time. And the satanic temple seems to just get bigger and bigger. In fact, there was recently an essay from a lawyer in DC published in the Huffington post. And she said, when, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, that was the last straw. I'm joining the satanic temple. I'm becoming a Satanist. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. I want to, I want to talk, I want to uh, swing back to that in a moment, but um, so Lucian Greaves is someone who, I'm fascinated by, and I find very hard to pin down. And, and I'm sure a lot of that is by design. Um, you know, in, in Penny Lane's um, Hail Satan, she, I think, paints a, a pretty compelling uh, three-dimensional portrait of him and sort of does her best to show exactly what you're just talking about, that he is uh, someone who is really concerned with social justice and this is the way that he has figured out how to express that um outside of the of the realm of theism and and western christian morality um but you know i i kind of want to know i know that you profiled him in your book um and spent time with him um and, and what do you make of him because again like i just don't there's there's something about him that i'm like i, I just don't quite get you yet and and i'm not sure if you're joking or like or, or how much you're joking and, and how much you're 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 poking and like you even in, in your book you even have a uh, a chapter about this very thing right about whether or not it's it's trolling or or religion and and i think he says something along the lines of you know, if I was just, if this was all just a joke, then I'd, I'd say I believe in the devil or something like that, right? Like, I'd be a theist. <laughs> um, so can you can you just give your own assessment of, of Lucian and, um, you know, what, what, what makes him tick? Yeah, so, you know, in, in 
you know, this is a guy who I've um, met personally and, and actually had kind of some 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 long conversations with, right? Because in, in religious studies, the idea is, you know, ideally you don't just interview somebody once, but you, you do hours and hours of observation and, and you try to sort of um, see the world um, through, through their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the other thing I should say, though, is in religious studies, um, or especially in the study of new religious movements, um, you know, it's very mindful. You never give religion a clean bill of health, right? right. Um, so, so some people have said, you know, well, Lucian Greaves is a cult leader and he's, you know, mad with power and, and even like he's a crypto fascist and things like this. I, I personally have not found anything that, that persuades me that those claims are, are, are true. Um, but I also don't want to be here and say, you know, Lucian Greaves is, is an angel, uh, because none of us are, are angels, right? So, so, so who knows what's going to happen in the future? Um, but I think he's very sincere about what he's doing, even though he he has a sense of of humor. Um, I think that he is he has a very deep sense of justice, and I talk about this in the book as well. That although they don't believe in the supernatural, justice is is a transcendent concept. You can't touch justice. You can't study it under a microscope. Yeah. Um, I think that he was drawn to Satanism and also to um, sort of transgressive, angry music. He's also a musician um, out of his sense of justice and, and sort of not seeing enough of it um, in the world. Um, but I also think that he has kind of been tempered um, by this project and that founding this tank temple has kind of forced him to think about what really is a religion. And he's he said, you know, I have a lot more respect for just the idea of religion now than I used to. I used to think this was nothing but basically failed intellectual propositions and just sort of stupidity. And now I kind of understand, well, you know, having a community and a shared set of stories that you care about and rituals that you do together and symbols that embody your values is actually not only valuable, but probably something that human beings are hardwired to do. Um, and so if you go back and, you know, there's a, there's an old podcast that he was in around 2002 or so. And, and there he's much more kind of like, yeah, you know, fuck, fuck everybody, right? Fuck, fuck organized religion. Can I curse on your show? I, I just, absolutely. Okay, yeah, do it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and now, right. He's, he's writing these essays about kind of, you know, it's because religion is so powerful and so important that we can't allow it to be abused by, by politicians. Um, so I have seen a lot of kind of evolution and, and, and growth, especially in his, his theories about what, what, what religion is. So I, I think he's earnest. I don't think he's doing this for um, the money or for, he just doesn't really have any money um, or, or, or healthcare. I don't actually worry about his health um, or, or any of these other things that, that people sort of imply when they use labels like, uh, like cult leader. Um, having said that, right, I've only talked to him for, you know, a dozen hours, something like that, you know, so I don't, I don't claim to have perfect knowledge of them either. Yeah. I, I do think one of the things um, that strikes me as most interesting about uh, his story, at least recently um, that, that is explored in, in, in the film um, is that, (laughs) you know, he kind of starts out with this, anti-establishment like there will be no hierarchy uh the satanic temple is going to be completely communal and there's no hierarchy and then you know in trying to run an organization without organization he's like yeah i guess that doesn't work uh now there's a hierarchy because there has to be and like and that was part of what the the um the, the split with him and, and, and Jex Blackmore kind of was all about. Um, but yeah, from, from a, from a purely kind of religious studies perspective, right. Someone attempted to make a disorganized religion and it doesn't work. Right? Like you, you, you need, you need organization uh, as, as part of a religion. And I, and I think that also probably says something about the, the authenticity of what he's, of what he's done that, that, you know, when they realized they needed a hierarchy, it says, yeah, this is a legitimate, um, religious enterprise that you're running here and this is a paradox that's that's somewhat unique to satanism right right how do you have a group of organized rebels whereas in christianity you could have a church and just say look it says here y'all are sheep i'm your shepherd right fall fall in line i mean not all churches would make that argument but it kind of lends itself to 
cooperation in, in ways that that um, Satanism doesn't. I actually have heard a really interesting sort of uh, theological argument from a Satanist I interviewed. And he said, "Look, man, when when Satan rebelled against God, he had an army." Presumably everybody in that army of, of rebel angels wasn't just doing their own thing, right? Presumably they had like units and tactics and things like that. Why can't we do that, right? Why can't we rebel as a unified army? Oh. Why do we have to just sort of all wander off in our own direction? Of course, that army lost. Badly. But I thought it was very interesting when people say, well, this isn't a real religion because they don't believe in the supernatural, that they're making those kinds of arguments. They're appealing mm. to what for them is a sacred story. Um, about what they should do, about what their actual course of action should should be. Um, the other thing I say in the book is that what sociologists have found uh, is um, it's natural for religions to splinter off and and form schisms and other groups. The anomaly is groups that don't, right? And there are certain factors that are associated with groups being more resistant uh, to having uh, schisms, and uh, the Satanic Temple has none of them. Right. So they don't have like a pope. <laughs> right. They don't have a pope. They don't have um, an ethnic component. Like there are lots of Irish people who are Catholic just because right. they're Irish. There's no there's no matrilineal um, succession. Right. Yeah. Right. In fact, it's the opposite. They're trying to be more ethnically diverse. Yeah. Right. Um, they don't have a formal um, process right now for training clergy, which is another factor that's linked to. Um, having having fewer schisms, so so I see the schism as being inevitable. Um, having said that, you know I interviewed people. I began my research before this 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 whatever you want to call it schism civil war that happened in in 2018, and and it was um, really rough for everybody involved mm-hmm. on on all sides of it, and, and people were really um, uh, suffering from serious anxiety and depression. And I, I started to feel a little depressed as, as well <laughs> yeah. after talking to people about, you know, I invested everything I was all in, in this, this movement. And, and now I'm, I'm questioning everything that, uh, that, that I, I dedicated myself to. I mean, that's a rough ride. Let's finish with this because, uh, you brought it up earlier and I think it's, it's worth pursuing. So yeah, we're going to have an interesting few months uh <laughs> in this country um and probably years and god knows what else but the death of ruth bitter ginsburg uh is a monumental event um in terms of the the future of shaping the ideas of um religious freedom and personal freedom and and so on and so forth we we are uh if we don't already, by the time this uh, show is uh, uploaded, we are on the verge of having a um, overwhelmingly uh, conservative, hard right Catholic Supreme Court who's likely to overturn things like Roe versus Wade and 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 seriously um, restrict individual freedoms based on the idea of uh, religious liberty. Um, do you then think that the Satanic Temple, um, that that Lucian and and whomever else, um, can take this to a new level? Um, the, and and their work on promoting individual freedoms um, and and not letting those you know th- this argument that of religious liberty. Uh, is there a real door opening here? Uh, do you think, or is it is it too? Is the power structure too far away from from the Satanic Temple that they could really make any difference? I mean, it's 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 hard to say. Right? It's yeah. hard to make predictions about the future, especially in times like this. What I have noticed, though, is that when when Trump won in twenty sixteen, uh, the Satanic Temple was inundated with new members and with money. Right, and people said, "I've got to fight back. I've got to do something." We're seeing that repeating itself um, after the death of Ginsburg. If Trump wins um, this election, I could see that repeating uh, again. Um, and and the Satanic Temple, they've overcome one obstacle, which is legally people were claiming they're not a real religion. That obstacle has basically been destroyed because the IRS has said they are a real religion. Um, so that's not really going to hold up in, in court. 
Um, and then I think as, as they get a more and more presence and more and more people join this organization and more lawyers join this organization, it's going to be harder and harder to just blow them off on, on technicalities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the other thing that I see here, right, is right now I see America as being under a tyranny of the minority that is inherently unsustainable. And I think that by going all in on Trump, you know, I, I think um, evangelicals really made a Faustian pact of if we can just stack the Supreme Court and overturn Roe v. Wade, it won't matter that we're supporting um, this guy who represents none of our values and is actually probably destroying the Christian witness for a generation. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so I see the rise of TST and um, evangelicals basically trading their moral authority for worldly power as being two sides of the same coin. Um, so I think whatever happens in November, in the long run, um, American Christians have done tremendous long-term damage um, that's going to take generations to, to repair. So that's that's where that's the view from here, anyway. <laughs> uh, anything you want to promote before we go? Uh, I have a new book out. It's called The Penguin Book of Exorcisms. Um, and I never got to say this before in my books, but it's in stores everywhere because it's from Penguin. It's not from an academic... <laughs> Uh, publisher, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that that's a collection of primary sources describing uh, exorcisms from, from all over the world. So if that's the sort of thing that, that interests you, um, go go check it out. Oh, I might have you back to talk about that. I have to read the book first, but um, where can people find uh, you? The best way to find me is just to Google uh, Joseph Laycock, L-A-Y-C-O-C-K. There's not that many people with that last name. That's true. And uh, <laughs> I have a... I have a website that should come up right away, and you can find links to all my books and, and articles and such. Very cool. Um, Joseph Leacock, thank you so much for talking to me. This was really, really fun. Yeah, it's been fun for me, too. Thanks for having I me. Bet. Happy Halloween. Okay, you too. I want to